True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. There's a knock at the door to room 205. The young woman answers and chaos ensues. Hours later, her parents will receive a call that will change their lives forever. In many ways, their lives will end that day too. And as the hooded man lopes away from the King George Hotel, he takes with him the answers to a two-decade-old mystery. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to Episode 67, The Murder of Leslie Brockbank's Fun Sale. This episode is sponsored by Dialabed. I cannot tell you how many people have said that the podcast is like a sleep aid for them. Apparently it's not that I'm boring, but rather that I allegedly have a soothing voice. So if you're prone to listening to the podcast while you drift off into dreamland, you probably want to make sure that your bed is supporting a great night's sleep too. It's easy to forget about the little things that insulate us from all the craziness that goes on in the world. But there's a place that's your sanctuary, a place that makes you feel all safe and snuggled up, your bed. But it's not just a bed to you, is it? Beds aren't just a place we open our eyes every day. Beds are more than stitching and cushioning and coil springs. Beds are life and love. Dial-A-Bed understands the importance of comfort and makes every single bed with something special. Dial-A-Bed makes beds for rest and all the rest. Upgrade your bed today by visiting a Dial-A-Bed store or shopping online at dialabed.co.za. A huge thank you to Dial-A-Bed for supporting True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank everyone that continues to support the podcast on Patreon and PayPal. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. There are now additional ways that you can support the show, with two online businesses providing 10% discounts when you use the code TCSA10 at checkout. You can get your health and beauty needs at King Online. And you can get all your printing requirements designed, printed and delivered by PrintCrowd. You can also help to support me as an individual creator by checking out the companion podcast I created with Showmax for the Devil's Dorp documentary, or by purchasing the Krugersdorp Cult Killings audiobook on Audible, Google Play Books or Apple Books. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to keeping the show growing and improving. You can also leave a review on the podcast app you use to listen. If your podcast platform does not have that option, a Google or Facebook review is equally helpful. Today's episode is an unsolved case. 
I first heard about the murder of Leslie Brockbanks Van Sale pretty early on in my podcasting journey. On occasion, I would be tagged by people who'd worked with Leslie in articles written about her murder, and it struck me how people still remembered her, even two decades after her murder, with such fondness and respect. I had originally planned to cover Leslie's case earlier in the months, but for various reasons that didn't happen. So when I pinned down today for the release of this episode, the date seemed familiar to me for some reason. Then I realized that today, the 17th of December, is Leslie's birthday. Later in this episode, you'll hear from some communications I had with Leslie's mom, Christine, about other ways she's come to remember this day since her daughter's murder. In researching this episode, I also spoke with Michelle Pinar, a journalist from the George Herald. Michelle and her colleagues at the newspaper have been instrumental in raising awareness about Leslie's case, and they've been my main source of information about it. Leslie's murder is a 21-year-old mystery that still haunts the people of George, and is on the minds of her family every single day. Up front, I'd like to say that I will be discussing people that were identified as persons of interest by police. As always, all of these people remain innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. The information and opinions expressed here are based only on details that are in the public domain, and nothing in this podcast is intended to cast aspersions of guilt on any single person. Everyone I spoke to about this case has strong opinions of their own about who may have been responsible for Leslie's murder. Those are their opinions, and theirs alone. My only intention with this podcast is to raise awareness around the unsolved murder of Leslie Brockbanks Van Sale. Anyone who loved Leslie would surely want her murder to be solved. I do not encourage social media outing or attacks on any individuals and request that you keep your commentary focused on the best interests of the case. So let's get into episode 67, The Murder of Leslie Brockbanks Van Sale. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Leslie Brockbanks was born to her parents, Christine and Arthur Brockbanks, on the 17th of December 1971. Leslie's parents are British, and at the time of her and her brother Paul's birth, the Brockbanks family lived in England. In 1981, the family moved to South Africa, specifically to the southern suburbs of Cape Town. I had the pleasure of chatting with Christine Brockbanks-Stewart, Leslie's mother, by email, and when I asked about Leslie's childhood and school career, she expressed how intelligent and studious her daughter was. When Leslie arrived in South Africa, the Department of Education recognized that she was far too advanced to be placed in the same grade as her similar-aged peers. She was therefore placed in a higher grade 
and would go on to matriculate from Plumstead High School in the year she turned 16 with a university exemption. Leslie had initially wanted to go into banking, but after trying it for a while, she decided it wasn't for her, and instead she started her career at Liberty Life. Christine told me that Leslie flew up the corporate ladder at Liberty. She would spend 11 years at the company and and was in their employ at the time of her death. As I mentioned in the introduction, in the last two and a half years, several ex and current employees of the company reached out to me regarding Leslie's case. These are people that worked with her more than 20 years ago, but they still remember her and speak fondly of her kindness and strong work ethic. Christine describes her relationship with Leslie as being friends as much as they were mother and daughter. She says that at one stage, when they both worked in town, they would meet for lunch almost every day. They loved shopping together and could spend full days trying on clothes and giggling at one another's jokes. Leslie met Pierre van Sale after she started working at Liberty Life. The pair married, but Christine says that almost immediately the relationship seemed rocky. In Pierre's statement, he would later say that their marital issues stemmed from his use of alcohol, which bothered Leslie. Christine, on the other hand, expressed that the couple's issues went much deeper than that. At one point, early on in their marriage, the couple lived in a house across the road from Leslie's parents. Christine says that Leslie would often come over to their house when she'd had an argument with Pierre. Christine believes that her daughter may have been the victim of physical or emotional abuse, or both. Leslie was soon promoted to the position of team leader within Liberty, and this job would entail a fair amount of travel. She would also often fly to other branches throughout the country to train staff on new insurance products. In August of 2000, Leslie's marriage was in a particularly difficult stage. She and Pierre had separated, and she was living with her parents. Christine says that Pierre had remained in regular contact with Leslie during this time, on occasion complaining that he didn't have enough money to support himself. On Monday, the 28th of August, Leslie's father dropped her off at the airport. She was due to fly to George, where she would be giving a presentation to the staff at the Liberty Life branch there. On arrival in George, Leslie drove to her hotel, the Protea Hotel King George, situated in King George Drive, just 10 minutes from the airport. Leslie checked into the hotel and was allocated room 205. It would later be determined that at some point after Leslie had checked into room 205, she received a telephone call in her room. I do not have a time for this call, unfortunately, but it's safe to say it was several hours after she checked in. The telephone call would be traced to a public phone box, remember those, situated outside the Dross restaurant in York Street, George. According to my research, it is not possible to directly call a hotel room from outside of the hotel. The call has to be routed through the reception desk. So the call that Leslie received that night 
must have first gone to the reception. The caller must have asked for her by name, and the call must have been transferred to room 205. We do not know who made this call. At some point after this call was made, someone knocked on Leslie's hotel door. The events that followed are also not recorded in any form of timeline, so we don't know exactly when witnesses saw what they saw. Another guest at the hotel passed by room 205 and saw the door standing slightly ajar. He heard a female voice say, You're hurting me. Leave me. Please let me go. The guest was concerned, and when he heard bumping sounds coming from the room, he approached the door. He peered in and saw that the room itself was empty, but the bathroom door was closed. The bumping sounds continued from inside the bathroom, and the guest rushed to reception. He told the receptionist what he'd heard and seen, and the hotel manager was called. In the minutes that followed, the manager, along with the security guard, would walk between room 205 and the reception several times. It seems that there was confusion about whether it was appropriate for the hotel staff to enter the room without the guest's consent. Added to this was the fact that the manager would later say he'd had a bad experience at a previous job, with a similar situation in which the guest had not been in need of help, and he had granted access to a room. He seemed to have been taken to task for this, and he was extremely hesitant to repeat that experience. As a result, none of the hotel staff made entry into Leslie's room. Later on, when they passed by, the door was pulled shut, and there was a Do Not Disturb sign hanging from the door. By 10am on Tuesday the 29th of August, Leslie had not arrived for her presentation at Liberty Life Offices in George. The offices are located less than three kilometres driving distance from their Protea Hotel King George. Leslie was well known for her punctuality and professionalism, and her co-workers knew very well that there was no way she would not arrive for an appointment without excusing her absence. Calls to her cell phone went unanswered. Eventually, her co-workers called the hotel reception at Protea Hotel King George. When the manager was advised that a guest in room 205 was not responding to calls, he approached the room to see if he could find Leslie Fansale. I don't know for sure whether this is the same manager that made the decision the night before not to enter the room. I would think that it wouldn't be, as surely that person would have been working the night shift, but I can't say with any degree of certainty. When the manager approached the door to room 205, the Do Not Disturb sign was still hanging on the door handle. When the man looked a bit closer, he saw a red mark on it. After several minutes of knocking with no response, the decision was made to make entry to the room. The manager knocked on the door and called out for Leslie, but there was no response. Now concerned for the woman's safety, he made the decision to enter the bathroom, and I have no doubts that what he saw would stay with him for the rest of his life. Leslie Brockbanks von Sale 
was laying on the floor of the bathroom. Initial media reports describe both stab wounds and strangulation marks around her neck. She'd been stabbed several times in her left arm, her chest, neck and head. A police officer working the case would later comment that it was very likely that Leslie had still been alive when staff were initially alerted to the sounds coming from her room. The officer tentatively said that if she'd received medical attention at that time, she may have survived. Now, it's very difficult to say this for certain, but it is entirely possible that this means that none of the stab wounds that Leslie received were fatal in and of themselves. So perhaps none of them struck an organ, like her heart or lungs, where death would have been very quick. It seems that the magnitude of the stab wounds meant that as staff were wondering whether to make entry, walking from reception to the room and back again in indecision, Leslie was bleeding to death. I want to make it clear, although it is extremely unfortunate that action was not taken at the time, I do to a certain extent understand why. A guest's privacy in the hospitality industry is paramount. If Leslie had simply been having a disagreement with someone and staff had intruded, that may have gone very badly for the staff. Add to that the manager's own previous bad experience and the fact that they would have had to have intruded in the most private of spaces, the bathroom, to ascertain what was happening, and I think their failure to act may at least be partially understandable. It's still very frustrating, and you have to wonder whether safety or privacy should be of greater value, but Leslie's death is not anyone's fault, except the person that killed her and I do hope that staff members present that day have been able to move on from that horrific moment. As soon as the discovery of Leslie's body was made, police were called to the scene. The investigation would reveal that no forced entry had been made to the room. Leslie, it seemed, had opened the door to her killer. Police would also determine that as Leslie had realised the intentions of the person in her room, she'd started to fight back, ferociously. The Do Not Disturb sign on the door did contain a blood smear which was sampled. Blood evidence was also collected from the jeans Leslie was wearing. Robbery did not appear to have been a motive, as Leslie's laptop and cell phone was still in the room in full view of anyone entering. There were a few items missing, though. Leslie's black purse was gone, along with her ID book and Woolworth's store card. Her wedding ring, a gold band, was missing, as well as a broad gold ring with several diamonds studded in it. Christine and Arthur Brockbanks soon received the most devastating telephone call of their lives. They were informed that Leslie had been murdered in her hotel room. Of that day, Christine told me, quote, It was on this day that my life, my husband's life, and our son Paul's would change forever and never be the same again. Part of us died that day, along with our daughter Leslie. End quote.
A reporter at the George Herald soon picked up the story. Pauline Lawrence was the first to publish a report on the murder just days after it happened. In the years that followed, Pauline would become an integral part of keeping Leslie's case alive in the public's mind and helping her mother to push for justice. When she retired, her colleagues Christy Kohlberg and Michelle Pinar would pick up where she'd left off. As would be the case in any investigation of this nature, police started with understanding the victim. Victimology is a vital part of understanding who may have had motive and opportunity to commit a murder. When they spoke to Leslie's devastated family and co-workers, a picture was painted of a stable, hard-working young woman. Leslie did not have any enemies, it seemed. She hadn't been involved in any arguments or disputes, and there seemed to be no immediately obvious reason why anyone would want her dead. As is also expected in such cases, Leslie's spouse, Pierre, was looked at as a suspect. Pierre told police that although he and Leslie had been separated for about two weeks prior to her murder, just before she left for George, they had reconciled. And, in fact, he said he was supposed to have collected her from the airport on Tuesday when she flew back from her trip. He told police he hadn't immediately been aware of what had happened, so he'd actually waited for her at the airport, and when she didn't arrive, he assumed she'd gotten a lift with someone else. Pierre worked as a representative for a fruit juice company at the time, and he provided police with an alibi regarding deliveries he was making to clients on the night of Leslie's murder. Unfortunately, at this time, I do not have any detail about that alibi, but police had seemingly only ever considered Pierre as a person of interest and not necessarily a suspect, so perhaps the alibi was airtight. It would take approximately four hours and 54 minutes to drive from Leslie and Pierre's house in Fishhook to George. That's a long drive, and considering we do not know much about the timeline in this case, although I'm sure police do, there isn't much more we can decipher from that. As I can see it, this investigation would have had two legs of inquiry. One would have been the possibility that someone close to Leslie killed her, and the other would have been that a random person had gained access to the hotel's premises. Once all of these paths of inquiry were taken, the police would have nowhere left to go, and that is precisely where they found themselves in the months after Leslie's murder. The case would land in the hands of Detective Clippies Theron who would keep the case until his retirement many years later. The forensic samples were submitted to the lab at the time, but no immediate result was made public. If you listen to my interview with Vanessa Lynch of DNA for Africa, you'll likely be wondering whether DNA was at the forefront of these investigators' minds in the year 2000. Vanessa Lynch's father was murdered in 2004, and that scene was very poorly handled in terms of DNA. It simply was not a tool frequently used at the time. We also have to take into account that there would have been many people in that room, 
and it's very possible that any DNA evidence may have been compromised because of that. In 2000, even if a DNA sample other than Leslie's had been isolated from the evidence, there was no database, as such, to run it through. Its only value would have been comparing it to an identified suspect. More on this later. Christine would tell me that when they received the news of their daughter's murder, their son Paul, who'd been working in London at the time, had immediately returned to South Africa. Feeling as though he could not leave his parents in the midst of this terrible tragedy, he decided not to go back to England. Unable to accept that her daughter and best friend would not get the justice she deserved, Christine started to do some detective work of her own. She looked into telephone numbers and people that Leslie had known, but she could never quite shake the nagging feeling that her daughter's killer was someone very close to home. In the years that followed, Christine would hire three private detectives. None were able to bring her any closer to resolution. Not long after Leslie's murder, her father Arthur was diagnosed with cancer. Christine would watch her husband waste away, feeling that rather than losing a battle with the disease, he was actually dying of a broken heart. Arthur Brockbank's broken heart would stop beating eight years after his daughter had been savagely ripped away from him. Christine believes that if he had his daughter by his side, his battle would have had a very different result. Throughout the years, the idea that her daughter may have fallen victim to a very personal attack continued to play on Christine's mind. When she discovered that Leslie's one million rand life insurance had been paid out to her estranged husband, that unsettled feeling had only increased, she says. Thankfully, Christine was not entirely alone in her quest for justice. George Herald journalist at the time, Pauline Lawrence, became rather close with the woman, as every year, around the anniversary of Leslie's murder, Christine reached out to request that an article be published, reminding the George community that her case was still unsolved. I had the pleasure of chatting with Pauline over text, and although she was unable to personally contribute to the podcast due to other commitments, she did steer me in the right direction to chat to the correct people at the George Herald. During my research, I was able to read some of her communications with Christine over the years, and I felt a surge of gratitude in how deeply committed Pauline has always been to this case. I think that sometimes we underestimate the importance that local community reporters like Pauline and newspapers like the George Herald have. Sure, community paper reporters are bound by many of the same constraints that national reporters are, but they also have the power to focus much more narrowly on cases in their own jurisdiction. Newspapers like the George Herald are some of the few that are still distributed in print format, and this makes them widely read by the very community that may hold the answers to some of these cold cases. When Pauline retired, as I mentioned, her fellow reporters Christy Kohlberg and Michelle Pinar 
picked up the mantle of keeping Leslie's memory alive in the minds of the people of George. I was lucky enough to speak with Michelle Pinar for this episode. Well, I'm Michelle Pinar. I'm a journalist in George. I work for the George Herald. I asked Michelle to give us some background into how the George Herald had tried to help bring Leslie's killer to justice in the last 21 years. Leslie's mom, Christine, basically kept this case alive for us. Since George is the place where Leslie lost her life, her mom obviously revisits in her mind and in her heart the town on a yearly basis. This is where she lost her daughter. So every year around the 28th of August, which commemorates the time of her death, we would receive a letter from Christine asking us to please post something somewhere in the hope that someone might come up with any new information. What is heartbreaking is that, you know, she gets a lot of people commenting on the story and sending her condolences, but she is still waiting for that information that will help to reopen the case. It was her heart's desire that they would be able to find Leslie's killer. And it seems that the authorities have lost interest. They see it as a cold case. One policeman once said to me, there's never such thing as a closed case. You know, a cold case is never closed. But for Leslie's mom, this feels pretty closed. So what we do is we, on a yearly basis, we not rehash the story, but we, just for those who missed it, the newcomers, we get so many new people coming into George. We would briefly explain what happened, where she was killed, who she was, and then ask people to come forward with information should they have any that they haven't yet felt prepared to share. Michelle spoke about how her colleague Pauline Lawrence pushed to get this case looked at several times over the years, and she shared some of the opinions that had been raised around possible suspects in the case. There was a stage when the story was pursued by my ex-colleague, Pauline Lawrence, She has since retired, but she was quite interested in the story and she followed it closely. So when I jumped on the bandwagon in 2018, I read all of Pauline's stories and I also saw the original clipping I found in our archives, which was written within a few days after the murder in 2000. This year marks the 21st year after her death. And we're still no closer at finding the killer. Now, many people suspect her husband, Pierre van Seyl. People want to know where he was at the time of the murder. And because their relationship was very rocky, to say the least, people think that he might be involved. There's been no proof. I never managed to talk to the guy and, you know, just get his side of the story. And that was something that was, you know, bothering me. And Leslie's parents, while her dad died a few years ago, her mom remarried but, and she lives overseas. But even though she's far away from South Africa, she still clings to the hope that she might find out what happened to her daughter. We chatted about the ways that this case could possibly be solved 
and of course, physical evidence was part of that conversation. Her letters to the press heart felt, and it, it's actually saddens one to read it and to realize that there's someone who's still hoping to know what happened. And what she's pressed for is for the case to be reopened and some of the items that were found on the scene to be analyzed forensically. There were blood prints, and she felt, you know, why can't they use modern-day technology and try to find the DNA? It's something that wasn't really answered to us. Uh, Pauline, when she pursued the case, she sent constant emails to the National Prosecuting Authority, but we never really got clear answers. They, they're not interested in the case. They consider it as, you know, closed. None of the items taken from Leslie's room that night, including her rings, were ever recovered. Eleven years after her murder, Christine was scrolling through Facebook and came across a post about a ring that had been discovered on a beach in Cape Town. She describes in a letter how her heart stopped because she initially believed it was one of Leslie's rings. Later, though, she started to second-guess herself. She didn't have any photographs of the ring, and 11 years after the fact, it was difficult for her to remember exactly what it had looked like. As the years relentlessly passed, Christine picked up on how many advancements had been made in the field of DNA. Many of the programs she watched on television showed cases, just like her daughter's, being solved through DNA, and she started to wonder what had ever become of the physical evidence in Leslie's case. By this time, Detective Clippis Turon had retired, and Christine had no contacts left at the SAPS in George. A chance encounter and a conversation with a guitarist would reignite the fires of hope in Christine's heart. Dolph Lowe is a musician at heart, but his trade is in something far less creative, the law. When this attorney heard about Leslie's case in 2018, and also heard that Christine was trying to get the physical evidence in her daughter's case reanalyzed with current technology, he volunteered to make an application to the National Prosecuting Authority for the case to be made active again. You would have noted that Michelle mentioned that as far as the NPA was concerned, at the time, Leslie's case was closed, and I think this term bears further explanation. I've heard many family members express to me that police have told them that their unsolved cases are closed, and naturally this is astounding to them because they've had no resolution, and to them the word closed sounds very final. In his book, A Profiler's Diary, Dr. Gerard Labaskachny shed some light on what this term actually means. In South Africa, and from my voracious consumption of true crime podcasts, I can confirm in many other countries too, when a case comes into a detective's hands, they will investigate that case until all leads are exhausted. When that point comes, the active investigation ends. The case is essentially shelved until new information comes to light, a connection is made to another case, or until a cold case detective 
has the ability and capacity to investigate. This initial shelving is referred to as the closing of the docket. This does not mean that the case is no longer available for investigation or that the police consider it unsolvable. It simply means that with the information available at that point, there are no more avenues of investigation to pursue, and so the case does not have an active detective on it. The process of reassigning that case to a new detective and essentially reopening the investigation can be tricky, and this is only because resources are so thoroughly stretched. So what Dolph Lowe hoped to do, on behalf of Christine, was make a submission to the NPA so that they could request that SAPS remove the case from its shelved status and reassess the physical evidence. And he did. In 2018, he sent a letter to the NPA requesting exactly this. Along with this, Lowe requested that SAPS advise Christine Brockbanks whether they still had any physical evidence from her daughter's case on hand, because she didn't know if they did. And sadly, she still doesn't. As no response to the affirmative was received from either SAPS or the NPI. I was unable to reach Dolph Lowe for comment for this podcast, but Christine confirmed that at that time, she was given no hope that the case would be given active status again, or that any physical evidence would be retested, or even whether such physical evidence even still exists. Both Pauline and Michelle regularly reached out to the SAPS and the NPA and received only one response. Captain Malcolm Poiki of the SAPS Media Centre and spokesperson for the Southern Cape Office said the following, quote, The investigation into this murder case was adequately done from the onset. Evidence that was gathered during the initial crime scene had been dealt with and had been submitted to the scrutiny of our laboratories as required and deemed necessary. Should new evidence or witnesses arise, the investigation can be steered in a new direction. We therefore still call on any witnesses or anyone that can assist with the solving of this crime to contact Crime Stop at 08600 10111. I cannot speak to the quality of the investigation in this case. I have been told that on the night of Leslie's murder, Several senior detectives were unavailable for those vital early stages of the investigation, but I have no way of knowing how deeply, if at all, this may have impacted the case. There are essentially two overriding possibilities in this case. The first is that someone close to Leslie killed her. The second is that this was a stranger attack. As I said at the beginning of this episode, it is never my intention to cast aspersions of guilt on anyone, but we have a very high rate of intimate partner violence in this country, and it's an aspect that will almost always be first to mind, so it warrants discussion with the disclaimer that we do not know who committed this crime, and any irresponsible public assumptions are not helpful to Leslie. Is it possible for someone that knew Leslie 
and lived in the Cape Town area to have travelled to George by car, killed her and fled back to Cape Town. Yes, that is entirely possible. That person, though, would have had to have almost 10 hours available to them to make that round trip. That person would also have had to have either powered down their cell phone or left their cell phone behind in Cape Town. I wondered about whether cell phone triangulation was even used in 2000, and I found a research paper called Cops and Call Records by Murray Hunter, which puts the earliest recorded use of cell phone location data in a criminal case in South Africa at 1998. Of course, this means that the suspect would have had to have been aware of this capability by law enforcement, and police can't just access records. They have to make a Section 205 application and provide reasonable supporting evidence for the request to be approved. Now, we know that the call to Leslie's hotel room came from a public phone. This seems to indicate a few things. Firstly, if that call was made by Leslie's killer, at the time of the call, they were already trying to avoid leaving evidence behind. And I don't know that it could have been made by anyone but her killer. If it had been one of her co-workers, they would have called from Liberty's office, or they would have used their own cell phone. And they wouldn't have called her room. They would have called her cell phone. Really playing devil's advocate here, maybe Leslie had ordered food for delivery. The phone was right outside the Dross restaurant, after all. But why would a delivery driver not call from the restaurant itself? And again, why call her room? The only reason I can see that someone would phone from a public phone to a landline in the hotel is that they didn't want their own number reflected on the call records, and they either did not have Leslie's cell phone number, or she was not taking their calls on her cell. The other piece of evidence that points to this being a personal attack is the lack of forced entry. The door wasn't locked, so she must have opened up for whoever came to her door that night. The door was not locked. Leslie's killer did not break down the door to get inside. The door was opened for him. But I think it's entirely possible that she may have at least opened the door a crack if someone said they were a hotel staff member too. It's the statements of the eyewitness that makes me think that this was not the case though. Remember the man who saw the door to room 205 standing open He said that he heard a female voice saying, You're hurting me. Leave me. Please let me go. Seconds later, when he looked into the room, Leslie was nowhere to be seen, and the bathroom door was closed. Now, I don't know about you, but if a complete stranger, even if they claimed to be from hotel staff, entered my room and started manhandling me, I don't think those are the words I would be using. Even taking into account that Leslie was mild-mannered and wasn't known for having a foul mouth or being loud, in a situation where a stranger is physically attacking her, surely she wouldn't have used words that seem so 
sensible. I don't know for sure what her tone was when she was saying these words, but they sound like the type of words you would use to talk someone down. And it sounds like something you might say to someone whose violence you've experienced on a previous occasion. I have no doubt that as Leslie was saying those words, her killer had run out of his own, if he'd even spoken to her at all that night. He'd grabbed her, maybe by the arm or the neck, and pushed her into the bathroom. And by the time she realized that the situation was not manageable, she was already trapped in the bathroom with her killer, where her cries would have been muffled. Something that I must consider, though, is that everyone has different reactions to danger, and it's not just the fight-or-flight reactions we always hear about. There's a third reaction, and that is fawn. The fawn reaction to danger is often seen in female victims. I think it comes from a combination of our natural desire to communicate our way around problems, and also from that societal expectation we all live with, that women should be complacent and not stir trouble. As ridiculous as it sounds that this may come out in us in a moment of mortal danger, it often does. The fawn reaction to danger often sees women attempting to talk their attackers down, rather than fight them or attempt to get away. Sometimes this attempt at reasoning works, and maybe that's what Leslie was doing, even though he may have been a stranger to her. But only she and her attacker know that for sure. The fact that Leslie's killer knocked on her door and attacked her in her room does not really point to either theory. But if her killer had known her, and he was the one that made that call, Perhaps he convinced her that he just wanted to talk, and maybe she gave him her room number. In researching this case, I asked on social media whether anyone in the hotel industry could confirm whether a hotel receptionist would give out a room number to a caller. Every single person that replied said that this would be completely against protocol. In fact, Many even said that it would be highly irregular for a call to just be transferred to Leslie's room without her permission. Could the caller have gotten Leslie's room number from reception? It's possible, but unlikely. So if they didn't know her, and she didn't give them her room number, they had to have seen her arrive and enter her room. Such a person could be another guest or it could be a member of staff at the hotel. The position of Leslie's room is quite important, I think. I looked at an aerial view of the hotel premises and compared that with the floor plan of the hotel I found on the internet, and I was able to identify the exact room she would have been in. Now firstly, her room was not inside a building as you might envision a usual hotel setup. It was an outside-facing room that overlooked one of the pools. You cannot see the room from outside the hotel's premises, but it is very close to the parking lot, less than a few hundred meters at my estimation. So it's also very close to the reception. 
Today there are guarded booms up at the entrance to the hotel. I don't know if those booms were there in 2000. But for the most part, any hotel I've driven into just lets you in. You just have to say you're picking someone up or meeting someone at the restaurant, and there's most often no sign-in procedure. So it is entirely possible that Leslie's killer may have parked in the hotel parking, walked to her room, killed her, and driven straight out. There were reports of a man wearing tracksuit pants and a hooded jacket pulled up over his head, leaving the area of Leslie's room around the time of her murder. This man has never been identified. Now I know your brain is screaming, well isn't there CCTV? And the answer to that is no. And if there is any, I don't know about it. According to my George source, most businesses in the town only started installing CCTV in the last eight years. There was also a report of a suspicious Ford Bantam Bucky that had been parked in a side street outside the hotel, and the driver had never been identified. The fact that some of Leslie's belongings were taken, again, could point to or away from a stranger attack. Considering the real high-value items were not taken, could the theft of her purse and rings have been a way to stage a robbery? Or was her killer simply being opportunistic and taking those things they could easily sell quickly, like jewellery? The method of killing speaks volumes about the mindset of the attacker. They brought a knife with them. There were no knives in Leslie's hotel room. This wasn't a case of someone coming in there to talk to her, or even a stranger hoping to flirt with a pretty woman and things suddenly going wrong. The killer arrived at room 205 with the sole intention of at least harming her in some way and at most killing her. While stabbing is often seen as a very up-close and personal attack method, reserved perhaps for a rage attack, it's also important to consider that knives are just more accessible than guns, and they're completely silent. Which brings me to the strangulation. Although we don't have the pathologist's findings on this, I think it's very likely that Leslie was strangled to silence her and then stabbed to end her life. Strangulation, again, is very up close and personal, but it's not unheard of in robberies. Again, it's an easily accessible method of killing. Let's address for a moment the possibility that someone employed by the hotel may have been involved in Leslie's murder, because this was an angle looked at by detectives at the time. Firstly, Leslie's murder was the first at Protea Hotel King George, and no such event has ever occurred again. Could the suspect have left the employee of the hotel directly afterwards? Yes, absolutely. But this theory doesn't sit well with me, because of the phone call. A member of staff at the hotel would have had no need to call Leslie's room from outside the hotel. If they'd seen her to identify her as someone they wished to attack, 
they could have just as easily followed her to see which room she was in. No one that knew Leslie ever came forward to say that it was them that had called her that night. Surely, if the call had been innocent and not made by her killer, that person would have put their hand up to resolve that part of the investigation. In the years since Leslie's murder and Arthur Brockbank's death, Christine Brockbanks has found some small solace in her memories, and in 2012 she was able to start making some new memories when she married Ian Stewart and moved with her son and his family to England. Every year on Leslie's birthday she has remembered her daughter with bittersweet tenderness. Celebrating the 28 years she had with her special girl, while also mourning each year that was stolen from her. When she chose a date for her second marriage to begin, she thought that Leslie's birthday would be an ideal date. That way, she can start to fill up that sadness with just a little added happiness. Today, she does her best to live a life that Leslie would have been proud of. She spends time with her husband and clearly adores her son Paul, his wife and their daughter. She says that her granddaughter reminds her so much of Leslie, the aunt the girl never got to meet. Through the memories that her family shares with her, though, perhaps she has an inkling of the wonderful woman they lost. When I first reached out to Christine, she expressed surprise that this new manner of getting the word out was presenting itself. In her words, I honestly thought there was no more hope. I've tried everything I could possibly do. And she has. Like so many parents and siblings of the missing and murdered, Christine has done everything in her power to find justice for her daughter. And while I am never one to try and get anyone's hopes up, I am grateful that through you, the listeners of True Crime South Africa, I can give Christine and her family one more chance at resolution. For the people of George, Leslie's murder is an enduring mystery. For the people in George, the hotel murder is one of the, the ones that they remember the best. It's a mystery. It's something that people are still talking about. Yes, they forget about it, but they get reminded as well, you know. And the hotel is still in George. I mean, we still have the King George Hotel. So once you've read the story, once you heard about it, you can't not think about it. When you revisit the hotel for some other reason or some, some function or anything, it keeps popping up in your mind. For the reporters that have diligently covered her story, I have no doubt that they'd like to print an article in 2022 with the headline, Leslie Fonsale Murderer Behind Bars. But a few things need to happen for that to come true. The thing about cold cases this old is that time plays both a positive and a negative role. On the positive side, sometimes it encourages people to talk. Relationships change, fear diminishes, and that one conversation you had that one night suddenly feels like something you can talk about.
On the flip side, with every year that passes, the physical evidence may be degrading. In 2022, if all goes well, we will be able to start taking DNA profiles from incarcerated offenders again and comparing those profiles to those from crime scenes. This is a crucial time for crime scene DNA profiles to be in the database. If Leslie's killer has committed other crimes and is currently incarcerated, and if a DNA profile was obtained from the scene, those two may be able to match up in the very near future. Failing that, perhaps there is other physical evidence that can be processed using current technology and compared to persons of interest in this case. But for that to happen, the SAPS and the NPA need to see the importance of doing this and allocating resources to this case. I honestly believe that this case is solvable. I think that with a fresh set of eyes and today's technology, we can identify Leslie Brockbank's fun sales killer. Leslie has been dead for almost as long as she was alive. But for her family, her memory lives on. Christine celebrates the 28 wonderful years she had with her best friend and daughter and is simultaneously terrified that she will go to her own grave, never knowing who took Leslie's life. I would like to thank the journalists at the George Herald and retired journalist Pauline Lawrence for your contribution to this episode. I hope that all of you know how important your work is and how much your community needs you. I would also like to thank Christine Brockbank-Stewart for trusting me with Leslie's story. I can't promise you that this episode will change anything, but I can promise you that you now have many more people on your side. 21 years ago, a killer made his way into Leslie Brockbank's Funsales hotel room, and he snuffed out the life of a beautiful, caring young woman. 21 years ago, he hung a Do Not Disturb sign on the scene of his crime, and we listened. We didn't disturb him. We tiptoed around his crime, and we let it lie. Only the people that loved her the most kept pushing, and soon they realized that they were pushing up against a ten-foot-high, rock-solid, do-not-disturb sign. Although Christine may never see her daughter's killer brought to justice for his crimes, I think the least that she deserves is a conversation with someone in SAPS or the NPA who can explain to her why she will never know, who can answer her questions, even if she doesn't like the answers. She's a reasonable woman, I can attest to that. Can she get that small dignity? Can someone just call her and say, Hey, Mrs. Brockbank-Stewart, I'm sorry for your loss, and I might not have all the answers, but I'm willing to listen to your questions. I know that the South African Police Service has the capability to solve this crime. I've seen them do it before. 
I know that the National Prosecuting Authority has the ability to prosecute this offender. I know that all it's going to take is for the message to arrive in the right person's ears. And the more of us shouting out the message, the greater the chance it will reach the right ears. It's time to take the do not disturb sign off the door. Rest gently, Leslie. We've got this. Thank you for listening to this episode, The Murder of Leslie Brockbanks Van Sale. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm going to be taking a break next week, which is the 24th of December, but I'll be back the Friday after that, the 31st, for a Spotlight Minisode. Until then, Have a wonderful festive season if it's something you celebrate. Thank you so much for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.